We then got captured by some soldiers, taken back to the square, and with six guys pointing machine guns at each of our heads, trying to decide who gets the pleasure of pulling the trigger. What I can say... Hey, legend, you just heard from Stephen Sashin, the CEO and founder of Zero Shoes, a barefoot shoe company that him and his wife, Lena, started from their dining room table. And last year, they just did $32 million in rev, and they're about to do a lot more. Besides being barefoot and being shot at in Tiananmen Square, some of the topics that we cover in today's episode are why you shouldn't listen to other people's advice, what question to ask yourself to get over any trauma, and how the role of luck influences your success and how to get luckier. Let's get into it. Pleasure being here. Um, should we start with the the uh, elephant in the room that if anyone's watching this, <laughs> um, I do not emanate light from the top of my head. Uh, I'm not an awakened being. It's just the that's where the blinds are and the morning here. Close to it. Close to it. Now, of course, that's what an awakened being would say to throw people off the track. So, yeah. you know, do with that what you will. <laughs> exactly. Amazing, man. Well, I'd love to start because, you know, you mentioned it um, earlier and I'm dying to hear about it. Tiananmen Square in 89? Yeah. Is that right? Well, wow. yeah. how did yeah. you end up there of all places? Uh, it was a bit of an accident. I, at the time I was doing stand-up comedy for a living and I had been working really hard for a long time, like seven days a week, nonstop, you know, multiple shows a day and felt a little burned out. I'd always wanted to go to Asia. I had a bunch of money uh, from having worked so hard. I had just ended a three-year relationship and one of my best friends was living in China. He'd been there for almost a year helping manage the uh, Beijing Jeep factory. It was a brand new project. And so put it all together. I, I planned this trip and then the uprising kind of kicked in and I figured I'd fly over there. I flew over on the 1st of June and I just kind of, you know, suss it out. And the word on the street was everything's pretty cool. So kind of not, I mean, not like cool, cool, but nothing crazy was happening. So I flew in on the evening of the 3rd and uh, suffice it to say the next morning, I actually got woken up by a guy that I met on the plane. He was staying closer to the square than where I was staying with my friend. And he came and knocked on our door and said, you got to come see this. Now, I got to back up. The night before, on the 3rd, um, we we rode our bikes out for dinner on the way back. We saw a bunch of soldiers coming in, like a lot of them. So we were thinking, okay, this is probably not good, but we didn't imagine what it was going to be. So my friend John and I, we went to explore. We found bullet holes in this guy that I met on the plane in his uh, hotel room window and in the various other places of the hotel room. We saw a soldier who had um, apparently been in an armor personnel carrier um, that got surrounded and he panicked and started shooting, killed some kid, and they ripped him out of the APC, strapped him to an overpass and set him on fire. Um, there was glass just covering the roads. And in exploring what was going on, we ended up with standing with a, a group of about, I don't know, 50 or 60 Chinese people on a road that's uh, like 50 meters wide. I mean, just, you know, this big, like multi, multi, I can't even say lane. It was just a big road. It was one of the main roads. And at one point, a guy in a little wheelie cart who had no legs wheels himself out to about 50 meters away. There was a bunch of soldiers. Everything seemed pretty calm. And then he starts wheeling back really fast. And then all the Chinese people turned and started running behind us in the opposite direction that we were facing. So my friend John and I turned around and we start running with them. But, you know, they're not running that fast. And just as he says something like, this is kind of like running with the bulls in Pamplona, all the Chinese people took a left down an alley and we're like the solo people heading down this infinitely long seeming road. And then we hear automatic weapon fire behind us and bull is whizzing by us. Um, there were a number of interesting things that happened. One of the first was 
I had the thought, you know, I've spent 27 years denying my Jewish heritage, and my last thought right now might be guilt that I got John into this because it was my idea to take a left to see what was going on. Or I had the thought, if I die, my parents are going to be pissed. And um, it was like all these weird-ass thoughts. But one thought that was in there was, don't duck, because we heard that they'd been shooting low. It was a rumor on the street. At that point, my body just leans forward. And I hit the pavement and just start skidding for a while. John gets down um, after he sees that I'm on the ground. And I stand up and start to run again. He goes, no, no, get down. And I jump down and ended up behind him. Guns behind us, then John, then me. He was basically a barricade. Totally unintentional. But at one point, he just looks at me with this look of like, you have got to be fucking kidding me. And... Uh, and anyway, uh, we then got captured by some soldiers, taken back to the square, and with six guys pointing machine guns at each of our heads, trying to decide who gets the pleasure of pulling the trigger. What I can say is I've never been so calm and lucid in my entire life. Uh, all I kept thinking is I got to stay. I had two main thoughts. Keep John in my sight so we don't get separated. And there's an idea in Buddhism that your last thought determines your next rebirth. And that popped into my head, and I thought... I just want to know that I'm dying so I can give it a, my best shot to have a decent thought and give it a good run the next time. And the other part was the people who were sitting there with machine guns at our head were kids. They were like 15-year-old kids in uniforms that didn't even fit with machine guns that looked like they could blow up if you breathed on them wrong. And they looked a little hyped up, and we found out later they were probably on some sort of um, uh, upper, some sort of like methamphetamine or something to get them through this very, very long walk through the night to get to this whole situation. So um, eventually a, a commander found us, um, and it's a weird thing when I say that now because he was probably 30 years younger than I am now, but he was the guy in charge. He calmed the soldiers down when they got a little too much, and they kept them pepped up when they got a little too calm. And um, eventually, I'm abbreviating the story dramatically, eventually they realized we weren't Chinese, we weren't spies, we weren't reporters, and they told us to run. And so we run back to our bikes, um, bullet holes in every tire. We make it back to John's apartment. We call the embassy and we go, do you know what's going on down there? And they went, ah, it's all cool. I went, no, no, not so much. Uh, and over the next few days, we were just trying to figure out what to do. You know, that image that people have seen of the guy with his shopping bag standing in front of the tank, we watched that from the Palace Hotel. Um, and it, eventually we found a way to get out of Dodge and did that escape to escaped evacuated to Hong Kong and then moved on from there but it was it was i'm going to sum it up with this it was an incredibly traumatic experience ish it took me a number of years of like every time june 4th came around i'd be a little freaked out or when i got back to the states and saw the movie batman and there's a scene when the young bruce wayne where his parents are being mugged and there's a shot where they uh, point to the mugger and the gun is facing you in the audience and I flipped out and ran out of the theater. Or actually, even when we were in Hong Kong, somebody bumped into me with a tennis racket in the same spot that I had been hit with a, the butt of a rifle, and I just fell to the ground and kind of collapsed. And I had things like that that happened for a little while. And then I had the opportunity to really look carefully at what happened and at my thoughts. And I realized that, again, it was the most lucid and calm I'd ever been in my entire life until as we were leaving, as we were running to our bikes, or actually on our bikes, I had uh, two thoughts. One was, the first was, oh, wow, we almost died. 
Well, I don't know what the hell that means. No one pulled the trigger. I never had anything. I mean, that was just a story. But as soon as that story kicked in, I had this massive endorphin wave. And it literally felt like a wave. Like when you're standing in the water facing the beach and a wave, the undertow kind of pulls, and then you get hit by a wave behind you. That was what it felt like in my brain. And it was just like bliss. And then my next thought was, man, if you were in a real war and something like this happened to you a couple times a month, a week, once or twice, I mean, whatever, how could you possibly come home and take someone saying, honey, the refrigerator's broken in any way other than wanting to blow your brains out because it just seems so unreal. And um, But once I had that, I kind of broke it down frame by frame and the quote trauma wasn't what I thought. It was just, this, it's going to sound horrible and awkward to some people, I'm sure, but it was mostly a story that I was telling by leaving out certain parts of what actually happened. Then the whole thing just disappeared. And it was, um, it was a fascinating experience. There's more to it about understanding global geopolitics and realizing that the Americans are the only people not evacuating their citizens. <clears throat> and then realizing that George W. Bush, who was the president at the time, was the guy who was head of the CIA when Nixon opened China. And so he probably knew things that everyone else didn't know. Everyone else thought there was a civil war that was about to kick off and get the hell out of there. And the American embassy was like, it's okay, don't worry about it, it'll all be fine. And it was only in retrospect we were going, wait, how the, why did they have that thought? That's interesting. So it was a pivotal moment for me, and it really did actually, I like to say, I don't recommend it as a way of changing your entire outlook on life, but it works, mm. or it can. I don't want to suggest anyone else should have the same experience I did. Yeah, wow. And we, we touched on luck when we first started talking, like, what a lucky, you know, you guys were lucky you didn't get shot. Lucky that, you know, someone didn't pull the trigger at a certain time. And like so many things had to line up for you guys to. You know, it's interesting. The luck, the luck part, it almost seems to depend on where you start and stop the story. You can always move a few frames back. You can always move, you know, end the story a few frames later. Um, you can just look at it frame by frame. It's an analogy I like to use a lot or a metaphor I use a lot for when I examining things that I believe. Um, but the luck factor, I mean, in my mind, luck is driving 90% of what's happening for me. And the other 10% uh, is also luck. Mm. Um, then there's a separate 100% of, you know, working <laughs> my butt off when it seems appropriate and hopefully being smart enough to know how to put out fires that started overnight, even if nothing changed since yesterday. But yeah. I, I don't undermine, I don't, I don't, mm, I don't want to say it. I don't minimize the role of luck in every aspect of my life mm, beautiful man yeah well i'm glad you're here that sounds like a freaking crazy story <laughs> it was it was something yeah and how how did your life shape after that to end? like when you had these experience of you know going on a shark tank or high pressure and choosing what to do with your life do you feel like that helped you to stay calmer in situations oh, that maybe if you no, hadn't no, experienced no. that it would be more no, uh, let's just say no it didn't help me stay calmer it's sort of like um I don't care how wonderful life seems when someone's driving 10 miles under the speed limit in front of me, it, you know, I, I'm, I'm not happy, but, um, it, it kind of was just a little trigger. Like when I was freaking out, there was just a different perspective. Um, it led me to, ex to just explore. I'd always been a, I was a psychology major. I've always been into cognitive psychology, but it really did lead me to explore new dimensions of that, especially related to business and what people call success. 
um, as we were going through what we we're doing. The thing, frankly, the thing that enabled me to, and and arguably what enabled me to handle some of what happened in China was the fact that I'd been doing stand-up comedy for how right. many years at that point. Right. Um, at that point, actually only, when did I start? Maybe five years at that point, six years at that point. And uh, that just breeds a whole different way of handling difficult situations in general. I wasn't, I, I don't remember being particularly funny during that time, but uh, people who were involved with us called me years later to say, if it weren't for you just cracking jokes nonstop, we would have lost our mind. And I have no memory of doing it because it's just like a reflex. But that, doing stand-up makes you impervious to certain kinds of events. Like being on Shark Tank, that thing people think of as a high-stress situation, it's my favorite thing in the world. It's like, just let Let's see what happens. Um, and because when you do comedy for long enough, you know that in a conversation, especially a high pressure conversation, no one can stump you. You just, you know, you're able to find a way to hear what they say and find a way to, you know, move the conversation in a direction that you would like. Mm -hmm. So um, not always if someone believes the earth is flat, you know, you're screwed. But for most situations, um, you know, you have a way of doing that. And that's so, you know, which came first, chicken, egg, pterodactyl? I don't know. Yeah, it's so interesting. Like we, we talk about it because I'm in, I'm in sales. And so we talk about it as being unflappable, you know? Ah, yeah, like yeah. People will really try and they just start to get emotional and you're able to sit and remain in this space of calm. They'll uh, to regulate around. I don't know if it would be calm sure. because things can come up, but you're able to keep going. And for me, one part of unflappableness is being impossible to insult. And the way I've become yeah. impossible to insult is not by having a thick skin, quite the opposite. It's by realizing and just investigating for, I don't know, a number of months that anything bad that anyone has or could say about me, <clears throat> if I look carefully, I probably think the same thing myself. You know, if someone says, oh, you're, you know, totally arrogant. It's like, yeah, I to I see it and I completely agree. And if I could do it some other way, I I'm all ears because apparently it turns some people off when I'm acting like the smartest guy in the room. So if you've got any suggestions, I am wide open because mm -hmm. I don't want to piss people off if I can avoid it. And usually the response is, eh, yeah, I do the same thing. But, but, but basically, you know, no one could, no one has ever said anything about me that is neither factually accurate. So why would I disagree? Metaphoric. So I'm cool with that. Or factually inaccurate. So where's it going to land? You know, you shoot an arrow at me, and if it doesn't hit, didn't hit. So um, if someone says I'm a you know six foot tall black woman, that's just not going to go anywhere because if you're not watching, uh, I'm not a six foot tall black woman. Um, so, but if they say you know something like, well, you know, you think you know better than other people, it's like I know a lot of the times I do think that. Some of the time it's true. Some of the times I'm just you know a little hyper responsive. And again, if you've got an idea about what I can do reliably, um, not just, you know, be something because no one can just be something. But if you give me a task, I can do that. This is going to sound like a crazy aside. My wife and I, we just had our 20th anniversary and we've been together for, we've known each, well, we were together three and a half years before that and knew each other for three or four years before that. Um, I just discovered something about her that I had never known before that I was wrong about. And I, what I've concluded, uh, with the help of somebody else that we know, um, when we're having something that could turn into an argument or even just when she's telling me about her day, my job, not a thing to be, but a thing to do. My job is to just understand it from her perspective. I don't need to agree. I don't need to even get it all, but my job is to try to understand. 
And that has dramatically changed our relationship. I mean, it was really good to begin with, but it's added this whole new level of intimacy that's frankly a little um, uh, scary for both of us for whatever reason. We haven't really taken a good dive into why is it scary to be more intimate with someone. Um, but sometimes that's an experience that comes up, you know, just getting a little too close to the fire is the feeling. And, and in a, it's a good fire. Um, so, but anyway, you know, give me something I can do, not some instruction about how to be, not some prescription for living. And, you know, again, I'm all ears. Who doesn't want to go through life, you know, keeping the people around you happy or content and mm. not getting in the way of things you're trying to accomplish or being helpful or whatever else. And we all have little patterns because we don't know any better um, that get in the way of that sometimes. Mm. So anyway, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I, I'm really curious because something that I've struggled with when, when I was a lot younger was discerning advice from experience and being able to like look at someone because I'm wanting to be, you know, become something in my life with that success, you know, we talked about before or something like that. And I would take on advice from older people without really taking the time to see, are they qualified to say this or not? Yeah. You know, do you have yeah, advice I have... for someone who's at a younger age and they haven't been able to discern that yet? Well, first of all, when you say when you were younger, what are you, 10 right now? My God. <laughs> no. Jesus, I don't know how old you are, but you look like a child. Um, a child who somehow grew a beard. A child who's been taking testosterone. I don't know what the hell's going on with you. But um, I have, I, I may ha maybe have the opposite uh, pattern where I just work on the assumption that people don't know what I'm going through. And mostly because of the businesses that I've been in, they don't. I mean, I've typically invented industries or, you know, been so disruptive that people think I'm completely full of shit. And so they, aren't, they don't have good advice for me because they're, they're trying to get me to play with a playbook that I can see is not real, which is why I started the business that I'm in. So um, uh, there's, here's a funny story about that. Um, I got a call a number of years ago from big, a friend of mine who's a big deal internet marketer. And he said, hey, you know, for X number of dollars, it was some large amount of money, we have the opportunity to go to Necker Island, Richard Branson's Island, and hang out with Richard Branson for a week. And I said, why would I want to do that? And he said, what? I said, why would I want to hang out with Richard Branson? He goes, well, imagine what you could learn from Richard Branson. I said, I already know what I could learn from Richard Branson. He goes, oh, really? What? I said, that I'm not Richard Branson. And guess what? Neither is he any longer. If he had to start from day one, couldn't do it. The world has changed and he has changed. You know, it's, it's that line, you can't step in the same river twice. So I, um, when I'm looking for advice, it's because I have a very specific question. If someone's coming in, it's a thing that Lena and I, my wife and I learned about our business. If someone's coming in and they say they want to invest, we know when to tell them, here's the door, knock yourself out on the way out. Um, is if they immediately tell us something about what they think they should do for our business. It's like, it's not going to work. It's a bad idea. Mm -hmm. um, I have, <laughs> in, in tw uh, 20, through 2020, we were actually looking to sell our company. And a number of people looked into what we were doing and came to the conclusion that our projections about the future were completely ridiculous and there's no way we would hit those numbers and it's not even possible and who do we think we are. And then when we eclipsed those numbers... Uh, at the end of 2021, I sent emails to about a dozen people with the subject line, is it too rude to say I told you so? <laughs> you actually um, did that? Okay. I did. Uh, they, were, they were mostly pretty gracious. But I, you know, but Lena said to me early on, she said, one day she was kind of frustrated. She goes, I don't feel like I know what I'm doing. I said, no one knows what we're doing. No one's ever done what we're doing. We, we, our job is not to know in advance. Our job is to figure it out as fast as we can mm -hmm. and then do something with that. She goes, oh, I can do that. I went, yeah, I know. 
So it's like that was the end of that stress. Right. Um, but it's a challenge. You know, you bring in new employees and they typically want to go, ta-da, look how good I am before they understand who you are. So anyway, your, your question for advice about advice for younger people who are looking for advice, I try to avoid giving advice whenever I can because um, what the hell do I know? But if I were going to try and generalize that, um, I would say this. Human beings love to have an easy story. Do A, get B, with the idea that B is going to make them happy. And A is a reliable path to B. What you want to do when someone gives you some advice, even your own, when you have your own thoughts doing this, <clears throat> take a look carefully and see how many examples can you find of A leading to the opposite of B. Let's call that D. And how many times can you find uh, times where C, some opposite of A, still leads to B? And then how many times just for the fun of, you know, does C lead to D? So in other words, um, some people say you need to have some sort of um, trauma in your life to, to be successful. It's, this is actually something I was hearing on a podcast this morning. Okay, well, how many times are people successful and they didn't have some serious trauma in their life before that? Um, and then the, the A leading to D, how many times does trauma lead to some you know, difficulty, failure, et cetera? If, if the overwhelming number, over, the overwhelming probability is A leading to B, then cool, give it a shot knowing that that came from history it might not be true today. Hmm. You know, you're taking a gamble either way. But if there's overwhelming probability, cool. But here's the other problem. If we really are committed to this idea, B is going to make us happy, then we're going to try and take those other stories of, uh, of A leading to D and C leading to B. And we'll probably just spin them around in our brain and make them do mental yoga in our head to convince ourselves that, you know, that we can become whatever, uh, I'm using the word successful hardly, I hate that word, but we can get this you know, goal that we're looking for and it will make us happy. Um, that last part is the real bullshit part. In fact, that's the one to really explore. Pay attention to this idea that when I get this thing, that's gonna make me happy and really check. There's a book called Stumbling on Happiness by Daniel Gilbert. Uh, I don't know if he's still at Harvard, but he was. The basic premise is almost every thought we have is trying to tell us what we need to do to be happy in the future, whether that's a minute from now, a year from now, or at the end of our life. We're really bad at actually predicting what will make us happy in the future. The only thing we're worse at is remembering how bad we are at predicting what will make us happy in the future. And we think we're special little snowflakes. If we interviewed a million people and found out that they got the, who got the thing we wanted and found out they were no happier than they were before, or they're just not happy after getting it, we'd still go, yeah, but if I got it, it's like you can hear from about a million people who won the lottery who were either no happier or less happy after winning. And we go, yeah, I know. But if I won the Powerball, I'd be different. And, you know, and maybe you would be, but statistically you wouldn't be. Mm. Well, I'm going to say, and I don't know if this, you know, how much of this came out of China back after that. But regardless, that's something that I'm very attentive to. I have these things that I'm trying to accomplish. I have very big visions for what we're doing with, with Zero Shoes. Mm. They're not pulled out of my butt. I can paint the picture in, in a way that you will completely agree with me if we sit down and walk through it. And yet, uh, and the idea that it will be um, some financial windfall for me is really interesting. And I do not harbor the illusion at all, at all, that I will be happier as a result of having the money. 
I may be happier that I'm not having to bust my ass from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day um, and that I can turn off my phone and it won't change my life. But the money isn't the issue. There, the money was just a thing that enabled me to get to the point where I can turn off my phone or I don't have to, you know, work all day. So, but it's not that the, it's not, it's a, I know that sounds like I'm I'm splitting hairs, but I'm really not. Um, I know a number of people who made a lot of money and made life more difficult for them because suddenly they don't know who to trust. They have to protect themselves in ways they never thought of. I mean, you know, I I like it when um, people in Hollywood, stars complain about being a star and everyone goes, oh, you knew what you were getting into. It's like, no, Mm -hmm. they didn't. I promise you. Yeah. So, you know, it, we, again, we're just really bad at predicting the future and really, 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 really bad about forgetting that. Totally. So it's so interesting what you just said about the trust piece because my partner and I, Bianca, we've been together since we were like 23. And I was like knocking doors, selling like cell phones and you know, internet and all sorts of stuff. And she was in university still. And it's like, we were just like flat broke, like yeah. so broke. It was a joke. Um, and... You know, and now that we're here, it's built so much trust. Whereas the story that I had when I was younger was like, oh, I can't wait to be a baller. And then I can like go and get the girl that I want. You know what I mean? And it was yeah. just like, wow, yeah. what a different. And now that I've, you know, got some sort of you know financial stability, I'm like, wow, if I was single right now and I would have no idea how to discern You're someone horrible. who actually understands who I am. Like one of my best yeah. friends is like, you know, very, very wealthy and he's 40. And he's like, you know, it's like the things that go, you know, we talk about is he's like, damn, how do I find a woman, you know, at if she's just hanging out, she's a hairdresser or something like that, and I'm worth, you know, oodles of millions of dollars, there's yeah. a there's a gap there, which is, growing up, that was the opposite story that I thought would play out in my head. It, it's it's a, two things. Um, one, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that I said to my wife, who I adore her because she can take a joke like this. I said, you know what the worst part about being married to you is? She's one I said, I'm never going to have the opportunity to be a rich, single old guy. It's like, I'm not going anywhere. I, I, I know how rare it is to find someone who can tolerate me. Yeah. So, but I got to back up. Um, I have two favorite jokes lately. And since you said knocking on doors, I've got to give you the, the, one of them. Um, so traveling salesman knocks on a door, door opens. There's a little kid sitting there with a glass of scotch and a cigar. And he's, the salesman says, uh, is your mommy home? And the kid goes, what do you think? <laughs> oh my god that's particularly funny for me because i've knocked on a lot of doors and opened the door and been like what is happening right now? <laughs> yeah it's a great joke amazing and you said you got a second one you got another one oh well the one? second one is actually in the same theme it's you know young kid joke so old man's walking down the street sees this 10 year old kid smoking a cigarette and he just feels compelled to stop and say, kid, you can't smoke. It's going to kill you. It's going to destroy your health and kill you. And the kid says, I don't know. My grandfather's 95. And the old man says, and he still smokes. And the kid says, nobody knows how to mind his own fucking business. <laughs> so, and I love it. That's hilarious. They're easy jokes. You'll be able to tell them. And it's as much fun telling them as it is hearing them. <laughs> That's epic. That's so funny. Um, Okay, perfect. So if we can um, maybe drift back a little bit, because I, I love where we went, <laughs> we went on, on you want, a man. great tangent. Um, I love this that you've talked about, you know, being too old to have gotten Ritalin. And, you know, you've got this such a great <laughs> story around like how you've bounced between different things and you're very aware of your personality. And I think like nowadays it's prescribed to people so fast. 
Yeah. And if I can share a little bit of a story about my brother and I, um, just to put some context around it, like we used to, we both got in trouble at, at school a lot. I was just the golden boy, so I hid it. Whereas my brother was swearing at teachers and like getting into fights and all that sort of stuff. Whereas, so I was like, I was good at fa you know doing the fadeaway. And I remember we went to this doctor, and I remember my brother must have been like ten, I was maybe twelve. And, you know, he was crying. He didn't want to go. And mum was, like, basically dragging him along to the doctor's office. And it was this big, scary building, you know, as a kid. And we were, I remember, like, being in this office. And the doctor was, you know, had this bottle of pills. And literally said, like, to, to my brother, Ben, he was like, you have to take these. You have to do this for your mum. And, like, was literally like, hey, you know, and he's carried that story with him. And he's like more talented than me, more skilled than me. Like he is unbelievably athletic, you know, semi-pro skater, just un unbelievable. And this experience as a young kid has like caught him in a shell, you know? And I'm, I'm speaking about it because we talk about it a lot. But like the story is like, oh, what's wrong with me? You know, because he has this brain that bounces around a lot. And yeah. once he got out of school, excelled at everything he did, you know? But in school, it was like there was this, but that story has carried with him, you know? Do you have any... I guess, advice for people going through that and having those negative thoughts that have been created as they were younger due to our environment, really, and the way that we treat it. Well, you know, that's a really interesting nature-nurture question because you can take two people in the same environment and put them into the same stressful situation and they'll have two very different reactions. So how mm -hmm. much is it the environment versus just the way we're wired? Mm -hmm. So, um, oh boy, oh boy. I have so many places to go with this. So if someone's using, th this is going to be potentially an interesting or horrible intervention. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. It's a thing that I, I, I put together years ago called the one question. So when someone tells me something like, you know, um, they're mad because the doctor told them they had to take this pill and they did that pill and people were told, told them they were wrong, et cetera. I mean, this is a you know, big story. I'm not trying to minimize it. But I say to someone, describe the problem. Tell me the problem. Don't be you know, psychologically sophisticated. Don't be coy. Don't be nice. Just you know, tell me the problem. Mm -hmm. you know, my mother dragged me to the doctor. The doctor forced me to take these pills. Now, of course, forced me to take these pills is an interesting story. But anyway, we don't need to go there. Describe the problem. Forced me to take these pills. Everyone told me there was something wrong with me, et cetera, et cetera. Here's a crazy question, and it's a non-rhetorical question. How long do you intend to use that problem as an excuse to be unhappy? Mm -hmm. And when I say it's a non-rhetorical question, I want an answer. It can either be a minute from now, a year from now, on my deathbed, never. I don't really care. But whatever the answer is, because, um, you know, why wouldn't you want to not use that as an excuse to be unhappy? Then the next question, so it's not really the one question, it's kind of the 1.5 question. The point five is, on that day and time, what will you do, physically do, to demonstrate, at least just one demonstration, that you're not using that problem as an excuse to be unhappy? Something that if we were watching you on videotape with no sound, we could see the before and after and see that you had done something different that looked like, you know, if, if then we said, yeah, I'm trying to prove that I'm not using this uh, problem as an excuse to be unhappy. We go, oh, yeah, I could see that. So I'll give you an example from my life, a recent one, actually. Um, driving to work every day makes me crazy. So because there's always it's only two roads, but people are always driving under the speed limit. And I drive a sports car, man. So it occurred to me and I've been doing this for years. 
And one day I decided to ask myself this question. So how long do I want to use this as an excuse to be unhappy? Every day, twice a day. And I went, I'm willing to stop this morning. And then the question, what am I going to do to demonstrate that? And I just kind of waited. And this is, these are the answers that popped into my head. Out of nowhere, if you ask a question like this, something will show up that you probably didn't expect. The first was, if there's someone driving under the speed limit in front of me, I have to think of at least three things that I am genuinely grateful for. And like feel it. And if we their slowness gets me to a stoplight that I would have otherwise gotten through, then I have to just laugh for 20 seconds for no reason. I don't know where these things came from. Now, here's the question. Does it, did it make it so that I'm no longer upset when someone is going slow in front of me or makes me hit a red light that I didn't plan to hit? No. But does it shortcut it and turn into something that at least for what used to be 100% of the time, now 80 to 5% of the time, is something enjoyable? Yeah. And I'm cool with that for now. Is, will it ever change? Don't know. Don't care. Mm. Not my problem. I don't have control over that reaction to begin with. It may change. Or maybe just doing this won't change the driving thing, but it'll change the way I relate to somebody you know, else in some situation. Some tech support person who's reading a script and can't help me, for example. So the only other advice I have is this, and this is going to sound a bit tangential. I'm taking a walk with a friend of mine, a um, young woman, and she said, you know, I'm just trying to listen to my body so I know what to eat. And I literally fell on the ground laughing. And she said, what's going on? I said, well, I used to have thoughts like that. But I don't any longer because I kind of looked into a few of them. And I know what your body wants to eat. Donuts, ice cream, pizza, french fries. You want calories. That's what your body wants to eat. You have this idea called you can listen to your body, whatever the hell that means. And it's going to tell you that you're going to eat something. The eating something is not the important part. It's the next step that after you eat this thing, it's going to change your body in a way that when you look in the mirror, you're going to be happy. Guess what? No one in the world looks in the mirror and is happy. Promise you. They may say they're okay, you know, mind, you know, push a little bit. And if you find one, guess what? It's such a small minority that clearly they're some weird exception from another planet. What that means is that this whole thing that you have, this not liking your body, it's a feature, not a bug. This is the way human beings are wired 99.999% of the time. If you look at most of the things that we complain about, they're not personal. They're a function of normal human being thinking because this is the way we evolved. We evolved to not, I mean, we didn't evolve to not like our bodies. This is my evolutionary psychology and biology theory. We didn't evolve to develop eyesight so good that we could look at a glass of water and see if there was bacteria in there that would make us sick. We did get really good at drinking the water and very quickly going, oh crap, something's wrong. Uh, mostly about crap coming soon. And so we developed this hypersensitivity to things to eat and drink and places to go and et cetera. That's what kept us alive. Now everything's pretty safe. So we're still using that same hypersensitivity in different ways. Um, th I know this is going to sound even more tangential. Uh, Larry David, who along with Jerry Seinfeld came up with the show Seinfeld and the character George is based on Larry. Somebody asked Larry, Charlie Rose, an interviewer, asked him, you know, I I'm told you make like $100 million in residuals every year from the show. And Larry did not want to admit to that, um, didn't want to go there. Finally, you know, he confessed that he was really, really, really rich. And the interviewer, Charlie Rose, says, so do you not worry about money anymore? And Larry said, the part of my brain when I was a poor stand-up comic that worried about money, 
that would go to the grocery store in the middle of the night when no one could see me buying a can of soup with change that I found. It, that part of my brain no longer worries about money, but it stays very busy worrying about other things. Mm. So most of what we think of as psychopathological is just a feature, not a bug. And that doesn't mean you have to like it. It's just the way it is. And there's individual differences. We're on a bell curve. So I, um, and, you know, we can reframe the story. I mean, maybe for your brother. Don't know if this is true. This is definitely true for me. If he had been allowed free reign through that time in his life before he left school, he might have been crazy enough that he could have done something incredibly stupid and never had the opportunities to then deploy the stuff in a useful way. You know? I mean, I used to demand in my head or when I saw a therapist for a couple of years that my father would have been some very different kind of human being. Um, and then one day it hit me, had he not been the rigid, not understanding me, structured kind of whatever person that he was, um, had he been what I was demanding, I would have had no walls to contain my mind and I would have been, I would have ended up being completely unfit for human consumption. Mm. Right. And so, and literally the moment that I realized that my next thought was, Oh, I guess I don't need therapy any longer. So I'm not complaining that, you know, he should have been different. Therefore I would have been some better way. And then I would have been happy. It's like, this is just the way it is. I, one of the reasons that I love my wife so dearly is that she really is one of the very few people I've met who can, um, I don't want to say deal with me like I'm a real problem, but just deal with me. I mean, I don't do history in my head. I don't do hypotheticals about the future in my head. And she has, because she's brilliant and loves me, learned to not ask me questions if the hypothetical has too many variables because I won't go there. I can't. Not the way my brain works. Um, I... I, she, she calls it my most confusing and endearing quality that people who have screwed me badly in the past somehow, I don't care. It's like, it's over. I'm happy to see them. They're very confused by that. Well, <laughs> yeah. not, but, um, but that, you know, I just, uh, but I, m most of the time I can't even remember. So, cause I just don't do history very well. So, you know, and, and things like that used to bother me. I, I can't remember names very well. If I see you out of context, I might forget who you are. Like, you know, it's a joke that I have. It's like, lady, you look really familiar from somewhere. Home, I'm your mother. Oh, you make cookies? Is that, you do that <laughs> one? So, you know, I'm just bad that way. Oh, well. And so I don't, I'm not apologetic about it. I can just say, I'm really, if I bump into you and I can't remember your name, I'm going to just say, I'm really bad at names. I wish I weren't. Tell me your name because it's just not showing up in my head. Hmm. Cool, man. Appreciate that. Really, really do appreciate that a lot. And maybe we could like move into that. We talked a little bit, it seems like about comfort and desires of the human body. And maybe we can talk about comfort, not necessarily being good for you and just accepting that that's about part of the human experience, you know, like, and maybe we could go from there into two, the shoes that are too cushiony. Too yeah. I don't know if I can go anywhere other than shoes that are too cushiony. I mean, comfort is a very interesting thing. Uh, let's just do the extreme example. You're weightless in space. How much more comfortable could you be? You don't have anything pushing on you. There's, I mean, it's just, you're weightless. And then these people come back from being in space and uh, their bone mass has disappeared and they, they can't walk properly or at all for a while because their muscle mass has you know, gotten so atrophied. Um, comfort is pleasant to a point, but not necessarily good for you. We can talk about it from the perspective of food. Fat, salt, and sugar 
really important. You put them all together and you're suddenly eating 10,000 calories a day, which rumor has it is not good for you. I, I, dude, wait, what foods do you have? Uh, are you unable to resist? Me? Like, yeah. Somebody puts it in front of you. You have to have something. You can't make yourself not. Oh, I'd say there's these tarts from this uh, pastry store that's a couple okay. of blocks away. Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, if somebody puts out donuts, I'm going to have to have some. Potato chips, I'm going to have to have some. Um, chocolate depends on if it's really good chocolate. Then it's different because I'm only going to have a little bit because that's all I need, mm-hmm. which is kind of the segue for the story. You know, comfort, we're, we... We're wired to look for it to a certain extent, but when it's just so readily available, we can abuse it, if you want to put it that way. Um, a tempur mattress feels really good. Is it good for you? I don't know. I'm not going to say yes or no, but we don't question these things. Again, we're looking for things that make us content or happy, happy more than content, um, and then we assume more is better. Uh, not my experience. So when it comes to footwear, I have to do a physics lesson to explain this. You put on a shoe with a bunch of padding, it feels really good. And we, in our brain then, go, if it feels good, it must be good. Well, let's do a little, let me explain what's going on there from from a physics perspective. When you have a bunch of padding in your shoe, um, what it's doing is it's spreading out the pressure that your foot feels. So your foot doesn't really feel much. But the force that you're hitting the ground with, whether you're running or walking, is still going somewhere. It doesn't get dissipated. If it got dissipated in the, in the foam, you'd feel it as heat, actually, just FYI, physics lesson. But you don't feel it as heat. What happens is that force um, goes up into your body somewhere. Now, if you're landing with your foot kind of underneath your center of mass and using your muscles, ligaments, and tendons as not only the things that move you, but as also springs and shock absorbers and joint protectors, then you're cool. But if you're landing with your foot out in front of you, whether you land, and typically you're going to land on your heel with a relatively straight leg, then that force has to go somewhere and it's going to miss the muscles, ligaments, and tendons because they require movement to function. And if your leg is mostly straight, there's not a whole lot of movement. So the force ends up going into your joints, into your ankle, your knee, your hip, your back, all the way up to your neck, depending on which is the weakest link in the chain. Now, that's just the way logic happens, um, is that's a logical thing. But let me give you a couple, uh, let me paint a fun picture. Many of us have seen an early film of some like carny guy, fat guy taking a cannonball to the stomach, slow motion video of this guy taking a cannonball to the stomach. And you see the cannonball hit him and like all the fat rippling, but it still throws this 350 pound guy like five feet in the air into the thing that catches him. That's the same thing I'm talking about. The, the, the pressure gets spread out. The force sends you back into the little trampoline that caught him. And the research backs this up. And I know data doesn't convince people of anything, but I'll say it anyway. When you have a bunch of cushioning under your foot, you stiffen your leg to use the cushioning. That stiffening of your leg sends that force into your joints. The research shows that no amount of cushioning actually uh, reduces impact forces. The only thing that has been shown to reduce impact forces is being barefoot or as close to barefoot as you can. So you're getting feedback that's basically saying, move your foot underneath you so you can use your knees and your ankles and your hips properly as springs and shock absorbers in addition to moving you forward. Um, Here's another bit of research. Again, people won't like it, but what the hell. This is on the Nike website. They did a study, came out, they did it about four years ago. It came out three years ago. 
where they compared their best-selling running shoe to a new shoe they developed. And it was a 12-week half marathon training program that they developed, that they designed. And in the 12-week study, the people in their best-selling running shoe, slightly over 30% of them got injured in 12 weeks. In the new shoe, quote, only 14.5% got injured. This is like, you know, one out of three versus one out of seven. Think about that in terms of a week. Let's call it, you know, one out of 3.5 versus one out of seven. I'm going to take you to dinner to a restaurant this week. Um, in fact, I'll take you to twice. And you have a choice. One of the restaurants, in uh, statistically, will give you food poisoning. The odds of getting food poisoning is like 30%. So high probability you're going to have. The other is only, you know, 15%, 14%. So which restaurant do you want to go to? You can, what, what are you, crazy? <laughs> if you went to a shoe store and said, uh, I want a, your best shoe, what can you give me? Well, here's our best-selling shoe, and it injures 30% of the people in under 12 weeks. No. Okay, well, here's one that's only going to injure half as many people in 12 weeks. Well, do you have one that's going to not injure me? Dude, you walked into a shoe store. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So now, but here's the, here's the kind of punchline from my perspective. Since we make shoes that are giving you a barefoot-like experience as much as possible, and I can explain that caveat, if we injured between 14.5% and 30% of the people wearing our shoes within 12 weeks of people getting them, not only would we be out of business, but I would be in jail. Mm. So what's going on? People, you know, with a big company like Nike or Reebok or Adidas, whomever, they give them the benefit of the doubt. They go, it must be me. I mean, the shoes have to be fine. They're the biggest shoe companies in the world. They know what they're doing. They've done all this research and development. But with a small company, if there's a problem, they go, oh, it's got to be the shoes. But it's the exact opposite. It's literally the exact opposite. And we're actually doing research right now uh, with some professional athletes about stability and force production and injury reduction. And the guys doing the research, you know, they're doing all this force plate data analysis and all these other ways of collecting information. And the researchers called us to say, just so you know, we, we're still compiling the data in a way that you can see what the results are. But we've studied so many people doing this, we can see it from a mile away. In your shoes, they are better. They're more stable. They're getting more force out of the ground. They're, and as a result, they're going to be less injury prone. Their body position is better. I mean, everything's better. We can see it because we've done this so much. And we've never seen anything like this with this instantaneous change by just putting on your shoes. Now, I'm not suggesting that you just switch to our shoes and just go about your daily life. You know, if you've been wearing, uh, here's another thing about big, thick, cushioned shoes. And again, they might feel good, but they're stiff. They don't let your foot move. What happens when you put your arm in a cast? Does it come out stronger eight weeks later? No. No, it comes out weaker. Same thing if you don't let your foot move. And the research backs this up. If you immobilize someone's foot, if you give them arch support, within 12 weeks, they've lost up to 17% of the strength and muscle mass in their feet. Conversely, how do you make your arm stronger after you take it out of the cast? You use it, do bicep curls, but you start slow because you've just been injured or you haven't been using that muscle for a while. Research shows just by walking in shoes like ours, it builds as much foot strength as doing an exercise program. Mm. But again, you start slow. If you've been out of the gym for a little while, you don't go back and do the same workout you were doing 12 weeks ago or 12 years ago or 20 years ago or 60 years ago. You start slow. Mm. And then you build up slowly based on the feedback that your body's giving you. So we like to say about zero shoes, we're just getting out of the way. So you can listen to your body in a way that's legit, not about what food do you want to eat to get thin and like what you see in the mirror, but to tell you, 
uh, am I using my muscles, ligaments, and tendons in a way that's optimal, that feels better? And so we like to say about our brand, we go, you know, we want you to feel what you've been missing, natural comfort, performance, and health. Mm. And we're just getting out of the way to allow that to happen. I mean, here's another quick thing about a regular shoe. The heel is typically elevated over the ball of the foot. Yep. It's a mild to significant high heel. Well, that changes your posture. Even if it's a subtle little thing, it's now putting stress on your ankles, your knees, your hips, or your back. Well, we're not doing that. We're flat, so that doesn't happen. Um, and we, I can't talk about all the things that people have said that have changed for them after switching to our product by going to what's natural, to doing what people have been doing, to doing what you were doing as a child living in the outback. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't say it because we don't have a medical study with our shoes demonstrating the things that hundreds of thousands of people are saying because we don't want to get our butt sued. Yeah, it's crazy, but, isn't it? And uh, the opposite is like I committed to just like wearing barefoot and especially, you know, we'll talk about that knocking doors experience. Like I was knocking on doors wearing these ugly ass vivos. Um, the Scott boot is so ugly compared to what you guys have got, which I use your shoes now. <laughs> um, and the and then I got this pair of Red Wings, which were like this really sexy pair of like, you know, leather boots. And they had this kind of like decent sized heel on it. And I was in, I was in Canada. So I was like, snowing you know i was trying to navigate yeah. that new experience and like i would i started to get headaches because i was I was walking for hours and i started to get headaches and i was like what the hell's going on you know i just spent 450 dollars on these freaking shoes and it was the you know opposite experience it wasn't going from having stiff shoes to you know having shoes like yours but it was the opposite and within like, right. like literally a day i was like oh, and yeah. i couldn't figure it out and i was like what the hell's changed and i was just like i went through food i went through everything I went through, I was like, what has changed in my life? Like, I'd never get headaches. And it was these shoes. And I took them off and I went back to my ratty ass, you know, Scott boots with holes in them. Yeah. Gone. Within a day. The, the, what you just said is so perfect. In the last 50 years, the footwear brands have been so good at their marketing to convince you that if you're having problems, it's your fault mm. and not the shoes. Despite the interesting little fact that if shoes were so good, why is there a multi, multi, multi billion dollar business for selling things to make your shoes better? better, mm. different insoles, different cushioning, different moleskin, whatever it is. The, the shoe companies know what that stuff is. They could build it into their shoe. Why don't they? Because they know it doesn't actually work either because it's the shoe that's the problem. We've had people who are um, executive levels at a number of multi-billion dollar brands say to people that we know directly, oh yeah, that natural movement thing is legit, but if we did it, we'd be admitting we've been lying for 50 years. Mm. And again, here's this research from Nike injuring 145 to 30% of the people that wear their shoes. And injury rates, by the way, go up over time. And I'll say something more about that in a second. But if that's the best you can do after 50 years, something's wrong. Mm-hmm. And backing up to injury rates going up over time, there's research uh, from uh, came out of Brazil showing that just doing a foot exercise program, no matter what you're running in, reduces the risk of running injuries by 250% over the course of a year. Now, I know people won't do the exercise program, even though it takes five minutes, 10 minutes, you can do it while you're watching TV. Um, but the good news, again, is the research shows that you get the same benefits of that exercise program just from walking in shoes like ours. So just walk it, run in whatever you want. So it's cool. I'm not going to argue with you, but switch to our shoes because A, it'll help with recovery because it's giving, you know, letting your foot move. It can help build strength uh, and it'll make your expensive, horrible shoes last longer. Mm, yeah. Can, can I ask you a question about I guess the science of making shoes, you know, I mean, sure. a little bit, but like with my Vivos, for example, you know, love them very comfortable. They fall apart so quickly. 
Whereas, like, how did you guys figure out how to keep your shoe more durable? Um, well, no one does this perfectly, no matter what the brand is. But with a truly minimalist shoe, there are fewer components and the construction methods are different. So it's just harder to make things last because you don't just have a bunch of things gluing a bunch of things into something really stiff. If you have something really stiff, there's just not as much force on the product that could make something you know, break, for the lack of a better term. So a really stiff shoe, there's just no external forces that are really impacting it significantly. That said, footwear manufacturing is hard. Human beings are involved. Somebody gets tired. They're not going to use as much glue. They're not going to sew properly. Whatever's going to happen, things, things happen, especially for smaller brands. If we like owned our own factory and had someone who knew every bit of the quality control process and they were watching every moment, you know, that would be a different story. But frankly, um, the failure rate that we, and I don't know about Vivo, but I know our failure rate is actually lower than most brands, yeah, but just, yeah. it's different. It's different. So we, the, the simplest answer is um, you, you do it wrong and then you have to figure out what happened and then you have to fix it. We, mm -hmm. We've been lucky enough that we have really smart people working on the team uh, at every level who just keep finding ways to do it. But it's never perfect for any brand, almost, I mean, really making any product. Uh, the difference, like I said, is when you're dealing with a big company, you tend to give them the benefit of the doubt. And with a small company, you do the opposite. It's just the way we're wired. Mm -hmm. So um, I do keep I do keep in pictures and videos of big footwear company products falling apart the same way every other shoe, including ours, will fall apart sometimes. And go, see, it's not just us. And people don't like that because um, they, you know, they want to blame somebody or something. But, you know, I'll tell you the other thing we do is we since we know that nothing's perfect, we have a 24-month manufacturer's warranty. If the shoe, like, breaks down within two years because of some manufacturing issue and we're the first to admit it, then we can give you a new pair. I think that one's a – yeah, that one's a freebie, actually. Yeah. So um, – Because that's what I was curious. You guys have more durable shoes than other shoes. Like well, I've seen that too. And part of that is we made um, – when we designed the rubber for our shoes – we said specifically to the rubber manufacturer, here's the qualities we want. We want something flexible. We want something durable. We want something grippy. Uh, and they said, but that's not the way they make outsoles for running shoes in particular. And we said, yeah, we know. That's why you have to do it this way. So most running shoes, they say you should replace them every two to 500 miles, usually more often, actually, especially the really, really big, thick ones. Um, mostly because the foam is breaking down because mm -hmm. all foam starts breaking down the moment you start wearing it. And they made the outsole to break down around the same time the foam becomes so compromised they think it's going to turn into a lawsuit. So we don't have that midsole, so that's not breaking down. So we just made our outsole more durable um, to you know give you more value for the for your money. Wow. And and speaking of money, I'm really curious to if you can talk about how you first made money online because you were originally me personally. Yeah. Like what was the first way you made money online? Uh, 1991, um, I bought a floppy disk with different ways, to, with in, ideas on different ways to make money online. And one is reselling this floppy disk. So you bought so, a floppy disk that said how to make money online? Yeah. It had, well, <laughs> I mean, that wasn't, that wasn't the name of it, but that was the oh, gist of it. Got it. Um, and there was like, you know, 20 different things that you could do. And it's like, that's cool. And so one of them was, you know, why don't you just resell this? You get a commission for doing that. And went, okay. So that was my first thing. Amazing. And where, where did you buy it from? I have no idea. Like that was the era of like well, that was the era. The well, that was the era of like CompuServe and online bulletin boards and Prodigy. I don't remember if even AOL was 1991. Um, so I, I don't know. It's just an early adopter to those things, and 
There was, there's always someone when there's something new that happens, there's, it's a race to see who's going to come out with the first thing on how to make money with this new thing. Yeah, man. Um, so, you know, when ChatGPT came out, like immediately there's courses on how to make money using ChatGPT. The internet is, YouTube is just full of them. Totally. And they are, most of them, the people doing them are full of it. So, uh, but that's always like, you know, the race to sell shovels instead of selling gold mines. Mm. Do you guys have a, a plan yeah, because you said you were going to maybe sell in 2020, and then you know you decided not to. Do you guys have a? Oh no, no, no. The coming we years, we didn't decide like? not to. Uh, a, I don't know if you heard, there was like a flu that went around in 2020, something like that, <laughs> yeah. um, or cold sniffles. I can't remember. Uh, no, all the companies that we talked to, they they just passed, mm-hmm. and and then COVID was a part of it as well. Uh, so it's not like we had a choice. I mean, my line about selling something, whether you can sell it and how much you sell it for. Um, I say value is in the eye of the beholder of the checkbook. And so you've got to find someone who's got, who sees the value and then has a checkbook that agrees with what you think. Probably not going to agree with what you think. It'll probably be less than what you think. And then you've got to shut up and realize that it's probably fine. So, um, uh, so we look to sell the company because we're at a point where people keep moving the goalposts on us. Like call us when you're at 2 million, we'll be interested. Then they weren't. Call us at 5 million, then they weren't. Call us at 10 million, then they weren't. Call us at 20 and they weren't. But they kept moving the goalposts. We didn't know that until they moved them. We thought we had cleared the goalposts. We were in the end zone, but no. Uh, but more importantly, we were getting to the point where we could see that to grow this company most effectively and help the most people and be able to combat the competition the best, we needed, A, deeper pockets. Mm. We needed more money to do that. And we needed people who uh, we could work with who've already done things like this so we weren't reinventing the wheel. Again, like I said at the beginning, no one's done what we've done, but there are certain things that they, certain aspects of what we've done that they have experience with. And if those translate to our business, it would be more valuable to have a good partner than to try and do it on our own. Right. Um, and then we just didn't have the opportunity because nobody was willing to give us a bunch of money or buy us out or whatever. So we've just been doing it on our own ever since. Mm. Um, now, that's not totally true. At the end of 2020, we did take on a private equity partner in a minority position. Um, they found us by luck. Uh, it was by luck that they were starting a new fund that we were perfect for. And so we became their first investment and they've been helpful for us over the last couple of years in predominantly, you know, that little bit of money that we needed that that we got from them then and having them on our team allowed us to get some debt financing from a bank that we couldn't otherwise get because they felt confident if these people are investing, we're okay with that. Mm. Um, so they've been really helpful, but we've been doing it on our own. And now we're at a point where we have, we are generating enough cash to be able to afford some of those people to bring them in house rather than just look for someone who's got it all in place and uh, let them acquire us. But again, but frankly, for the growth of the business, it may be true. I don't know if it's true because of what's happening with us now. It may be true that certain companies would be able to accelerate the growth that we're experiencing dramatically if they became our partners or if they acquired us. Mm. Maybe not. It's hard to tell. Because again, what we're doing is so unusual that we don't know if we're going to be able to find someone. Mm. And so we're just you know, going forward with the idea that we won't. And we're not, we're not actively looking. Um, we're kind of in the, in the phase now. We've been turned down so many times for so many stupid reasons and proven them, those people wrong so often that we're kind of tired of it. It's like... We're just going to keep going. And at a certain point, when we prove it yet again, 
and you're, you know, for the third time you're going, oh, wow, I was wrong again about what they were going to do. Maybe someone's going to call. What they don't know is if they already turned us down once or twice, the odds of me doing business with them is pretty close to zero. Yeah, you already sent the I told you so email. It's like, <laughs> well, it's not even that. It's like if you didn't believe me then, exactly. now you're just an also ran, you're, you're, or you're whatever the term is for that. Mm-hmm. If you didn't believe me then, you quickly won't believe me again. Yeah. And um, so, you know, will the world change? May that change? I mean, again, I'm, I, I'm not, I don't hold a grudge, but I will call them on it. It's like what changed from the time where you thought I was full of shit till now? Yeah. Probably just and if it's about <laughs> and if and if it's about just the business, it's like, yeah, that's not going to be good enough. Yeah, it, I'd love to know like how you how many people do you have on your team at the moment? Ninety two. Ninety two. Wow. And, and I guess were there moments where you had to you guys had to change how you manage that amount of people going from maybe five to ten to twenty up to ninety? Uh, well, my answer for me is yeah, I had to learn how to manage anybody. Right. Because that's not my normal style. I, my, my management style is laissez-faire and hands-off and then complaining if something's not working. Um, I, I, partly because I don't have time to be managerial. Um, I, 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 my expectation is that we're bringing on people who have talent and a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit. And they're going to commit to what they're going to do and then stick to their commitments and do it. And if they don't stick to their commitments and I say, hey, you, here's what you agreed to and you didn't do it. They're not going to scream and yell and bitch and moan. They're going to go, oops, what do I do now? Or they'll renegotiate in advance if they're really smart about it. Um, That's not always the case. Finding good people is the number one most difficult thing for any business. Mm. And you you rarely get it right on the first try. Um, So the challenge for us has been how do we manage these people without it becoming hierarchical, Mm -hmm. without it becoming, you know, where without having middle managers who are just telling the people above them what the people below them are doing and they're not doing anything. Anyone who works for us has to get their hands dirty. They got to get their feet wet and um, not in our waterproof shoes, by the way, that won't happen. Um, But um, uh, so it's frankly, it's a huge challenge. I don't have an an answer for your question because we are growing so quickly and expanding our staff so quickly that we're still figuring it out in real time. How do you manage that level of scale while also maintaining the quality? Has that, has that been a tricky thing or it's actually not been? The, the, the quality. What Sorry, you, the, quality the, the quality of the shoes and maintaining the quality. Oh, that's easy. The distribution. No, that's easy. Uh, that's easy because there's always, you know, because there are specific people and a small number of them who are responsible for that. Right. So as things grow um, on the product side, you know, eventually we're going to have more designers, more developers, more whatever. But fundamentally, once it gets to the factory, it's already gone through, you know, there is a bit of a hierarchy there where there are people who are deliberately, demonstrably, 100% responsible for maintaining quality mm. for in the design part to begin with. So, and then communicating with factories and then monitoring the factories. So that's, um, and the, the more, the more we work with a factory, the better they get at understanding us. Mm. And because when we go in, we'll give them a product. You know, here's what we want. Give us a sample and it'll come back completely different than what we asked for because they, they're clearly thinking, these people have no idea what they're doing. That's not how you make a shoe. Right. So they put in stuff that is not what we want because they think we're stupid. And then we explain to them and we show them and eventually they figure it out. Mm-hmm. So, and we give them instruction. We're, we paint a picture so they understand the principles of it. But then we need people, we need boots on the ground to just reinforce that idea. No, don't add that piece of whatever that we didn't ask for because you think it needs it. 
we know what we're doing. Trust me. Mm. I've, I've heard you talk um, about kind of like when you talked about brand and, you know, you being the face of the brand and saying, I think you, you mentioned this like video that you were talking about where it was like you for like three, five, three to five seconds and then you, you know, showing your feet for the rest of the 10 minutes and everyone was like, oh my God, we want to see more of you, more of you, more of you. Well, yeah. they didn't say, we, oh, trust me. They didn't say we want to see more of you. <laughs> um, what they, but I did get emails from people going, uh, can we get more video of your feet, please? So I did get those. But um, what started happening is I started getting recognized on the street. Mm. Okay. And in and in airports, when literally it was five or you know five seconds of my face before it was like down to my feet to show, hey, make a sandal based on a ten thousand year old design idea. Um, and I know as a longtime marketer, people do relate to people mm. better than to abstract whatever. I was just trying to keep my face out of there because I thought if we're ever going to sell the company, having me directly tied to it is going to be an obstacle, or it could be. And um, but I just gave into it and went, okay, so I'm going to you know, face forward. Yeah. And, and to be candid, I enjoy it. It's something that I like. It's something I'm good at. It's something that's fun. Um, I guess that's redundant with like, and, and so that's okay. Uh, but we are making the transition ish to just having more and more content that has nothing to do with me mm. and using me in a way that's more like, you know, here's my face for five seconds and away we go. I mean, my, my hair is up right now cause I didn't have time to take a shower this morning. But if my hair is down, um, I'm apparently pretty recognizable. So I, I haven't made it through an airport in 11 years without being stopped, <laughs> yeah, um, or or a Whole Foods grocery store in color in in America. Um, so I, I get it. And ironically, you know, and that was partly from being on Shark Tank too. But it's funny, my wife and I will be somewhere, and people will recognize me, and they'll come up to my wife who was on Shark Tank with me, standing right next to me, and they'll say, "Oh, wasn't that the guy on Shark Tank?" Right to her face, and she's like. Uh, yeah. So she's just the, she's the, she's the more generic, beautiful woman. And I'm just the odd looking. <laughs> unique. And yeah. how did you settle on, I think, I've heard you say the, the mom and pop kind of brand, but serious. Like, how did you come around that decision? Or you feel like it's Again, just organically? Uh, you know, it's important for me, especially because the internet has made things so impersonal. Mm to remind people that there are human beings on the, this end of the equation. Mm. Um, because like, here's a, a funny version of this. If, if someone, if some customer is complaining about something, whether it's valid or not, that's not relevant for this part of the conversation, but they're complaining about something. And you know, our customer service people who we refer to as our customer, pardon me, our customer happiness team, if they can't help, if it's just getting worse and worse and worse, I go put them on the phone with me. Because they just won't do it with me. Or if they're getting emails that are just, you know, more and more vitriolic, put them on the phone with me. Because it doesn't have to be me. Actually, I usually say just call them. And usually that stops it. Because people just don't react, behave the same way totally with humans. Totally. So that was kind of the thing that I wanted to engender. Um, it actually came up, I was watching a TV show last night. And a couple of people who are very celebrities said, you know, People like scream at me on social media all the time, including friends of mine. They will just like attack me on social media. Over the last 20 years, the number of people who've actually said something to my face, two. You know? so, uh, so that was part of it. Again, it was like people like to relate to people. And I came to the potentially incorrect uh, assumption they would like to relate to my wife and I. What do I know? We were the only two people that were there at the time. Yeah. So that's all we had. And um, 
I mean, in fact, it's funny. I do know a, a friend who has a brand that was all built around someone that he knew, a woman that he that he knew growing up, and he's still the brand is still maintaining itself with her as the face of the brand, even though she died like five years ago. Wow. Yeah, they're able to do that. It's interesting. So, um, so it was a semi-deliberate decision to just try to personalize as much as we can to make people know that there's human beings on this side of the equation. Yeah, interesting because it seems really that like authentic authenticity like breaks through so much because of how much as more and more people are coming onto social media and you know everything there's people are trying to fit themselves into boxes but what we really yeah. relate to is like the human being people. on the other side yeah well you look we all know the experience you call someone and like i mentioned before you get tech support and they're reading a script and you know if they would stop reading the script and just listen to you for 5 seconds Either they would know the answer immediately or they'd know who to put you in touch with who knows the answer. Instead of you having to waste your time for 30 minutes, you know, I literally had a, a printer that was that I diagnosed that the, uh, the Wi-Fi setup software had bug in it and it would crash if you used it. And at one point, one of the customer service people said, maybe the electricity in your house is bad. Or no, sorry, the electricity in that room is bad. And I said, I've been to the country that you're in and that's possible where you live doesn't work that way here. So, uh, but eventually, you know, it took me 80 hours till I got through to someone who said, yeah, it's a known bug. Mm -hmm. It's like, you gotta be kidding me, man. I mean, I spent 80 hours on the phone dealing with this and it's a known bug. So, you know, that if you get someone who's willing to, you know, hear you out for a second, it's like the same thing with like uh, the IVR, you, you know, you know, press one to get to this place on the phone thing. You know that, Nine times out of 10, if you just get to a human being, you'd get to the right place faster than having to go through the IVR. Totally. So, you know, things like that just make me crazy. So yeah, authenticity, whatever that means, um, is key. And once you can fake being authentic, you're, you got it made. So. <laughs> <laughs> like, would you have any, um, I guess, words of advice, or is it just reps of trying to do that to get your personality out? Because I find even myself sometimes no, when I, I record, I'm like, Who am I, why am I, when I watch it back, I'm like, that's not yeah. quite. No, I, like, I, look, the, the, the only thing I can say about my on-screen persona versus my off-screen persona is I don't cuss as much on-screen. Um, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm less, um, uh, I try to withhold my disdain for people who can't think clearly to a certain extent, I don't roll my eyes as much, uh, you know, um, when I'm on camera, but, but fundamentally, maybe it's just my psychology. It just takes too much effort for me to code switch. It takes too much effort for me to try to quote, be something else, mm -hmm. whatever. And doing stand up comedy contributed to that because as a comic, part of the skill is just like you, you don't edit per se, but you can tell if there's something that's a good thing to say, it just comes out of your face fast. So you can tell if it's good or bad quickly in this weird non-conscious way. But then once it's past the, that gatekeeper, it's just out the door. Mm. And so I, I, just, I just don't have that ability to edit very well. Now, if you've seen the movie The Social Network about Facebook and you see how, how just insufferable Mark Zuckerberg is, the way they portrayed him, I said to my wife after that movie, I spent a lot of my day trying not to be like that. Mm. Um, but it's not that I'm putting on an act. It's like, I know that, like I said, you know, if I, if my dad were the way I wanted, I'd be insufferable because I would just say, I would say rude things to people all the time. Um, you know, just uh, the person who is in the express lane at the grocery store 
with who's trying to write a check from Venus. I mean, you know, I would say something. Um, so it's like, first of all, what's a check is the first thing I would say. But um, uh, again, I want to be socially acceptable. So I don't say everything that comes to my mind. None of us do. But that's really it is just in, in the real world. Uh, I'm, on, I'm on slightly better behavior, barely 5% better behavior when I'm on camera than I am in real life. It's just too, it takes too much effort to do anything else. Okay. Um, and then do you have any words of advice for someone who's... No. I haven't... Sp- <laughs> no, oh, sorry. <laughs> I mean, the odds are good that the answer is no. Yeah, so yeah. I'm just, I just want to save you some time. All right, let me hear it. Go ahead. No, I think like, or sharing some of your experience around that takeoff stage where people are getting resistance, but they believe something to be true. And sometimes you can just be going down the wrong path. Like when do you, when do you think it's the right decision to see if you're full of shit? Yeah. See if you're full of shit and change direction or just like keep charging forward because you believe it. Well, um, if you're entertaining the question, it's too late. Hmm. In other words, you want to try and prove that as quickly and cheaply as you can before you commit to anything. Right. Like in the old days, direct response advertisers, they would put a full page ad in a magazine. You had to clip out a coupon and mail that in to get the product. And they literally would write the ad before they committed to the product just to see if, if it, what the response would be. If they didn't make enough money, they would just rip up the checks and they wouldn't move forward. You can do that on the internet now. You know, you, can, you could build a landing page with, you know, with a sales page or a video or whatever, or just make a video and put it on TikTok or YouTube, wherever, and then run some ads to that thing and see what happens or even don't run some ads and see what happens. But what you want to do in terms of proving it is not just to get people who say, Ooh, I like it. I don't give a shit about likes. You want people to prove that they are willing to give you money. So down to the level of build out this one page website that includes a way that they can uh, put in their credit card information. And the moment they start to hit their credit card info, it's like, oops, we're having a problem with our web server. Um, We can't take your order now. We'll email you if that changes. I mean, there's lots of ways of doing it where you're not taking people's money in advance. Um, but you want to prove as quickly and cheaply as you can, will strangers reach into their pocket and take their hard-earned money and give it to me? And because if you're deciding, do I stay or do I go? It's probably too late and you probably, I mean, I don't want to give you advice because this is, again, one of those things, A leads to B, C leads to A, B leads to D or whatever the hell I was saying, or A leads to D. Um, there is many stories of people who stuck it out as there are store and succeeded as there are people of store people who have stories of sticking it out and ended up bankrupt. There's more of those, frankly. There's way more of those. So, the the advice in the business world is always contradictory. One's people going to say stick to your guns. The other's going to say pivot or cancel. One's going to say it's all about um, I don't know. It's all about marketing. It's all about I mean whatever they whatever piece of advice you hear about what you need to be successful in business. If you look, you'll find someone saying that guy's full of shit. Here's the real thing. Yeah. Okay. Test. And both. And by the way, both of them are wrong. Mm-hmm. Is the point. Mm-hmm. Man, I think that's a great place to finish. That was incredible. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's wrong, including me. If you got any value of anything I anything I said, you clearly misunderstood me.